Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Patrick. And I'm Zoe Albion, your other co-host. On this podcast, we talk to scientists about their recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to these scientists about how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn how they decided that they were new species and the behind the scenes stories of finding them. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the new species podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Brogan Pett. Brogan is a doctoral researcher in the Center for Ecology and Conservation at the University of Exeter in the UK. Additionally, Brogan serves as the research director of Spiderverse, a work group of the Belgian nonprofit organization called Binko. He's here today to talk to me about his paper on the March 14th issue of Zootaxa, in which he and his co author describe a new species of spider from Madagascar. Welcome, Brogan. Thanks, Brian. It's um, absolutely a pleasure to be here, um, and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Wow, there aren't written. So you're the two. You're one of the two. (laughs) (laughs) You have described a new species of spider. It's in the family Corinidae, which are generally what uh, a group of spiders we associate that kind of like ant mimics. Specifically, there's a subgroup of those, the Castorini, where you're doing stuff here. But these are not ant mimics. These are mimicking, if you want to say, something else, right? Can you tell us a little bit about these spiders? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Corinidae, as you as you correctly say there, um, are very often um, ant, ant mimics or myrmecomorphic. Um, there are two subfamilies within this family, uh, the Corininae and the Castinerinae, um, which, as you've just mentioned there, the, the Castinerines are the subfamily from which the spider that we've just described in this paper belongs to. And very commonly, they do mimic ants, um, and the, the vast, vast majority do. But the uh, this specific species, uh, Copper sacalava, um, belongs to the genus Copper. There are a couple of species from from continental Africa, um, and this is the first one, uh, or sorry, this is the the only valid one at the moment d- described from from Madagascar. And and you say the only valid one because there are two others that were described, but nobody can find the specimens, and one was done by a specimen that no reasonable person would have used to describe a species, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other two have been declared nomina dubia, which means they're, they're in, in, invalid now, and those names can now be used again because they were based on either a juvenile specimen um, or they were described very poorly more than 100 years ago. And I know in, in one instance, the type material or the sort of name bearer of that species was then destroyed during the bombings in Germany in World War Two. So both of those other two species species have then been um, invalidated. So this is the first uh, species of copper, uh, or again, sorry, the only currently known uh, valid species of copper from, from Madagascar at current. So these these spiders are actually cryptically coloured. Um, they're, they're a dull brownish orange, um, which is quite, quite rare for the subfamily, more generally. But the sort of the the way they're referred to on the continent is cryptic lycosiform coloration. So if you know if you're out doing survey work in the tropics or the subtropics, and especially um, on grasslands on fine evenings, you see tons and tons of wolf spiders or lycosidae. And on Madagascar, for whatever reason, they appear to be in 
much lower abundances and they're also much less diverse. Um, so on Madagascar, this this genus of, of Castanerine spiders, copper, um, they've actually radiated extensively. So there's actually about 40 undescribed species of this genus on the island. So that's so they're really, really interesting for that uh, for that reason. And the the strange work they have here is, of course, they actually aren't mimicking ants, which is what the vast majority of, of others in the group do. Yeah, they're mimicking kind of the wolf spider, so they're almost filling in the the ecological niche or the little role in the in the ecosystem that a wolf spider would do. And so they've kind of taken on the wolf spider body form, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and whilst <laughs> I think we definitely need um, a, a little bit more data and for the sort of revision of of these of this copper radiation on Madagascar um, to be published before we can make any sort of um, uh, like ultimate claims, basically. Um, it definitely lends itself towards uh, filling that niche and that sort of uh, contrasting dull coloration that enables an organism to to survive and thrive on the sort of leaf litter on the forest floor. Um, that 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 seems to be um, what's happened on, on Madagascar is that they've maybe radiated into those niches. Um, and that's why you have this really high species diversity um, on, on Madagascar. And again, ju just to reiterate, and on the, and on continental Africa, there's only two species of, of which one um, covers and it has an absolutely enormous distribution, um, potentially owing to its um, abilities as a, as a generalist. So these are these are relatively common spiders on Madagascar. There's just so little work done there, correct? Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say they're very very common. Well, well relative was... relative to the mainland, there's so little work done. Yeah, sure. So definitely diversity is substantially higher. I think with uh, Castanerines and Corinids generally, they aren't hugely abundant. They aren't a massive feature of sort of common common collecting expeditions or collections. Sorry, because I, I th it, it's Charles Haddad who's done an awful lot of work in it in the Afrotropics on this group, and he sort of hypothesised that this was due to them that them having some um, very sensitive tarsal sco uh, scopuli, which are sort of like dense dense patches of hair, that when they encounter something like the rim of a pitfall trap, um, they're able to sense that and then, you know, flee instantly from a from a substantially different substrate. So that might explain why in many um, sort of pitfall trapping collections, which are focused on epigeal arthropods that, that hunt along the surface yeah, of the, the ground. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why you don't see huge numbers of, uh, of corinids in these samples. But if you were to go out at night... You, you would see a lot of them running around and their sort of relative abundance is actually a lot higher than their representation in, 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 in collections commonly. And these spiders specifically, we're saying that they mimic wolf spiders. So here in the United States, most people get an idea of like a very large spider, but wolf spiders vary in size from just a few millimeters, like a quarter of an inch up to like a couple of inches when their body's all spread out. These are relatively small though, right? As I recall, they're about Males about five and a half millimeters and the females about six and a half millimeters or so on average? Yeah, sure. So definitely the most conspicuous of all of the wolf spiders are going to be the the much larger species that have a, a, a sort of much more yeah. lasting impact on people's memories. But um, actually from uh, Pitful Trap projects and projects focusing on ground-dwelling spiders, they're enormously abundant um, in most uh, tropical, subtropical, and even temperate systems. And the size ranges are absolutely enormous. 
Um, I know from previous work in Paraguay, we have sort of 10, 10 species of wolf spider from this one small grassland site. And the morphological size separation goes everything from, from some of these smaller spiders uh, that we find in these studies, all the way up to the very largest spiders there. Um, so, so there's a lot of very small and intermediate sized species there um, that people often overlook and maybe maybe think that they're juveniles or sub-adults of a different species. Yeah, no, we have the same thing here in North America, even right where I am. They go from just the little little tiny things that are just a few millimeters long, less than a quarter of an inch up to the, the, the big giants. Yeah, absolutely. Do we have any idea what these carinids are doing, the, this, this particular species, this new one is doing ecologically? Uh, did you... Did you just collect this in a pitfall trap? Was this hand collected? How exactly did you get this particular one? Yeah, okay. Um, so they were collected using um, just nocturnal hand collecting. So it was all active collecting with with vials. Um, the spiders were collected as part of a joint uh, as part of a joint expedition to northwestern Madagascar by Operation Wallacea, DIBCAM, a local Malagasy organization. And uh, the spider element of this group was headed up by BINCO, uh, which is the organization I work with in Belgium. And um, the, the spider surveys conducted as part of these generally yearly expeditions all occur at night, which is when the diversity and activity of our target groups are highest due to their activity patterns. Um, as far as the ecological information that we glean, we do sort of six or seven routes at each of the at each of the satellite camps on, on which we work, and we take um, university students out on on these night surveys, and we we'll, we find sort of five sites in forested areas, five sites in grassland areas, five sites in sandy areas at. At, at each of these camps and then we find um we be, we begin our surveying sorry and we survey everywhere up to about five to ten meters away from a predetermined point so we have detailed ecological information from these from these collecting points essentially but that doesn't give us the um the most intricate view of each individual species within that sampling within that sampling events um ecological nuances for example so the actual detailed ecological information that we have at the minute is reasonably low i think we you know <laughs> there's still more than 40 undescribed species from this genus on madagascar and until that sort of picture is complete um the the specific niche and how these uh this like large radiation of this genus is able to uh coexist on, on madagascar um the picture is currently somewhat unclear i mean but we do we do know a little bit about these spiders, right? Because I mean, yeah, sure. First, you you know the habitat specifically that was caught in, and also these are not going to be. When most people think of a spider; they think of something that builds a web. These are going to be wandering spiders. They don't oh, really absolutely. build a web. They're the kind that just go around and hunt on the ground, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so the region itself in which these spiders were caught, it's not the the lush evergreen rainforests commonly associated with Madagascar in the east of the country, but it's the dry deciduous forests in the north and the west of the island, with the uh, sort of central the central mountain range dividing Madagascar into that sort of eastern lush lush rainforests and the sort of western dry forests of the of the west and the north so yeah we know some we, we know some basic broad level ecological information about the species um, there are huge numbers of endemics all across madagascar of course um, and we find that absolutely no different up in these up in these northern forests that that are often quite quite neglected as a as a study system in compared to the rainforest in the east 
Um, well, everybody wants to work in the rainforest, right? That's the <laughs> that's the greatest place to work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, luckily, that <laughs> means lots and lots of areas like these dry forests in, in northwestern Madagascar have gone almost completely um, up. Un unexplored for, for a very long period of time um, and then we have the privilege obviously of working there and uh, describing all of these new taxa. Yeah and, I, and I've said this sort of thing on the podcast before where we talk about habitats that are, are considered you know high priority for people. They're always tropical, they're always rainforest type things and there's good reason for that because there's a lot of diversity in those areas but a lot of the adjacent habitat or even just habitat like where I am here in the, in the upper midwest I still find new species here. Now, I don't find hundreds of new species like you find in the rainforest, but we still find new species here. Just like you're finding there in Madagascar, it's a completely undersampled area. So for those out there listening, if you want to go find new species, go to the place that people don't ordinarily look because they think it's boring or whatever. And I bet you'll find stuff. And I'm sure that's probably your experience as well. Yeah, I um, I absolutely echo that sentiment. It's an incredible experience to be out in the rainforest. But I think if you're interested in true biodiversity exploration, you have to cover all of your angles and all of those really threatened and imperiled habitats um, that are, you know, unique and suffer many of the same pressures um, the world over. So, yeah, absolutely. When you caught this new species, how did you decide it was a new species? Was this something you recognized in the field as like, oh, I think maybe this might be something new? Or, or did you have to bring it back and actually study it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, of course, it's an excellent and fundamentally crucial question. Um, <laughs> this is quite a rare case in spider taxonomy. And I, I think anyone listening uh, will understand that a sort of simple uh simply being able to identify something in the field as new is, is reasonably rare. So there's a lot of lab work that goes into this. Um, this is actually, as we mentioned before, I think, uh, actually one of only two currently described Castinaran spiders from Madagascar. Now, the other being the recently described Malagasy endemic genus Griswoldella, um, which was, again, uh, described by, by Charles Haddad. And that genus has only one species distributed across the entire island. And again, there were two species of the genus copper described more than a hundred years ago on Madagascar, which have both been invalidated um, or, or declared nomina dubia. So actually, we're in this quite sort of really rare situation where it was almost a free hit scenario where there were no other Castaneroan spiders even remotely resembling this spider from Madagascar. And you know, again, the the species previously described, the standards of taxonomy have increased. You know, exponentially over the past century um, and now having uh, high quality illustrations and descriptions of the crucially important genitalia is the standard. Um, so, so you do find reasonably commonly now, I think just as commonly as finding a new species, um, having previous species become invalidated based on having having poor descriptions. Um, and yeah, again, this is a really, really unique case where actually the the fact that, that what we were dealing with was definitely a new species to science um, was reasonably straightforward uh, to sort of ascertain once we'd got it in the correct in the correct genus. Sorry, but having said that, yeah, and, and actually, sorry, carry on. You're right. That's not that's not a very common thing. I, I, I've done a a few frogs on the podcast. The three or four different times I've interviewed people who've done frogs. Those they they reasonably say in the field like this is probably new, and they can tell by the call. Mm -hmm. And the only other outside of frogs, Ali Reza Zamani, who does spiders as well, was collecting in Iran. And he picked up something and he's like, 
well, this bright coloration thing is nothing I've ever seen before, and I know most of the spiders in Iran, so I can reasonably say this is a new one. So you're right, that's a really rare occurrence to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had a I've had a similar experience um, in the Chaco of Paraguay. There's a wolf spider there, actually, and it has the largest median apophysis, which is a certain element of the of the male of uh, the male reproductive structure that was um, about the same length as the symbium, which is the structure that encloses it, and that's not seen in any other wolf spider across the entire uh, across the entire world and i could identify that in the field but that's related to an incredibly rare occurrence of a very extravagant structure yeah and that still does require we take all this stuff back to the lab just as you said to do all the detailed work but sometimes in the field you get lucky and you're like oh okay now that's got to be new <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So going on from from this genus copper, as I mentioned, so Charles Haddad's obviously um, putting together this this forty or more species re revision on on Madagascar, um, and in that there'll be much more intricate diagnoses against all of the Malagasy species uh, of the genus copper. Whereas in this instance, we only had to diagnose it against the sort of continental congeners, the the other two right. species of the genus on on Africa. So you got it described before it became a headache. <laughs> Ab ha! Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we know where you found it. We know that it was collecting with students, and we have a rough idea of the kind of habitat and the area it was found. You've determined it's new. At this point now, then, you get down to the fun part, which is picking a name. Can you tell us how you picked the name of this? Because this is Copa Sakalava. And how did you pick the name Sakalava for the specific epithet? Yeah, excellent point. Um, so Sakalava, as the specific epithet for the species, uh, comes from the Sakalava ethnic group that predominate in the western and northwestern region of, of Madagascar. Um, so Sakalava actually means uh, people of the long valleys, um, which relates to the flatness of the land in western Madagascar. And I think that's also a really interesting point is you know, how scientists are, are choosing names for their new species. Um, my personal opinion is that it's important in the context of, of, of an expedition or a series of new species discoveries um, to honour local customs, traditions, groups, or even deities. Um, and, you know, in some cases, that galvanises interest even outside of the scientific community, um, which is obviously a fantastic thing. Yeah, um, so that's how we chose it, and... At this point, it's great to mention my co-author, uh, Bien Rabamanandjara, um, who, who is an absolutely fantastic uh, young arachnologist in his own right and was uh, fundamentally important to this, uh, to this research paper. And you mentioned that it's important to name it after some of the local areas. The, that's the point I'd like to make is that that spider is new to science, but not new to the people who've been around it for hundreds to thousands of years because they've probably seen it and just thought it's just a spider. Mm. And I'm, and you know, this happens with, for example, I had talked about the frogs earlier. They they show the frog to the local people. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's such and such a frog. We see that thing all the time. So while it's undescribed to science, it doesn't mean that it's not undiscovered in the world. And sometimes it's worth giving a nod to those people who knew it was there all along. Yeah, it doesn't mean every species is like that, but there there are a lot of species out there like that. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and I think. There's many conventions that are researcher-specific, and people will have their own uh, personal preference for how they name species, and, and you know all of them have their all of them have their merits. 
personally, I like to keep it majorly focused on local words and, and languages. Um, obviously, the odd sprinkling of a, someone who's been influential to your own journey or to conservation sites as a whole is always is always good. Um, a huge number of the new species described by uh, my organization, Binko, are often dedicated to people at the forefront of conservation science in those respective countries. Um, recently, they've described a number of new species from from Honduras and and also Madagascar, um, and they've all been named after hugely influential, you know, t titans of conservation in their respective countries that have you know pushed the boundaries um, of, of of tropical conservation science. Yeah, and you know, there's there's actually been some studies recently. Uh, in fact, I'm reviewing a paper right now for a journal that looks at spider names. And it's, it's interesting how they used to be mostly based on morphology or things that you could see. For example, bicolor was a common one. And now we've switched in the last 30 to 40 years to doing mostly uh, these patronyms where we're naming it after people or places or, or you know, words in other languages, that sort of thing, as opposed to these morphological characteristics. So I just think that's really interesting that we've shifted the focus to try to honor people in a lot of different ways places in a lot of different ways and languages in a lot of different ways that were not considered normal, you know, uh, 50 or 70 years ago. So it, it's good, I think, that we've made this shift and that you, for example, are recognizing this local indigenous group there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's a sort of secondary benefit there as well sometimes where I know you've had um, Peter Yeager on the show and he had the, the David Bowie spider, which, you know, had an absolutely unprecedented sort of fanfare for uh, for, for the naming of a, of, a, of a spider species and, you know, brought the image of this um, of this fantastic huntsman spider to the eyes of, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people that, that, that never would have actually read the species description itself. So, yeah, the there's multifaceted benefits to it and I, and I think it's just um you know like the platform for creating a new species name is a very unique and remarkable one and I think trying to utilize that as best as possible um you know is is really important now that we've talked kind of the the broader area of like where did you find the species etc we should mention and you you brought them up briefly earlier the the nonprofit that you're working for, the Belgian nonprofit organization that uh, ended up being Binko, and you're working in a specific group of that called Spiderverse, which is nothing to do with Spider Man and Marvel. <laughs> uh, can you tell That's us just not... a little bit about that? Yeah, if I... like what is the purpose of the group, and and where are you doing most of your work? Fantastic. Yeah. Um. So Binko, or the Biodiversity Inventory for Conservation, um, is a is a Belgian non-profit organization of highly motivated volunteers, um, aiming to fill the gap or the often missing link between biodiversity organizations and the areas that they study. Um, and one of the core elements is to provide quantitative biodiversity information and promote the primary taxonomic activity, which is the discovery of new species, uh, that can actually contribute directly to the protection of selected, um, highly imperiled and highly biodiverse regions that we often work um, and go on expeditions to. You know, like I'm sure you're familiar, there's a general lack of appreciation um, um, in the academic community for for a lot of this primary taxonomic work. Um, and, you know, outside of that, um, this sort of collective that we have, it's often, there's often this sort of lack of a bridge between someone being an, an enthusiast in a certain taxonomic group and, uh, say, um, a, a, a graduate biologist, for example, Um 
and that sort of bridge between being a taxonomist and wanting to, wanting to discover new species and use them as a as a catalyst for conservation in these in these highly biodiverse areas um it's just it's often missing so Binko is providing the tools, the training, the material and the means to go on these expeditions for young scientists to effectively contribute to biodiversity discovery and conservation. We're always looking for new members and our reach is global in scope. The Spiderverse is relatively new. There's currently only four of us, um, but the sheer number of uh, new spider discoveries and new species awaiting description um, is enormous. Um, so yeah, if there's anyone out there listening who is uh, sort of thinks it sounds um, as exciting as it is, which is immensely exciting to uh, to, to discover a new species to science, um, then please do get in contact with us and we will arrange uh, training and membership and all that sort of stuff. We currently suffer a little bit from a lack of resources. We've had to turn down some, some offers to go on expeditions from Flora and Fauna International in places like Tajikistan um, and also from the Ghanaian government because we lack the, uh, the, the current resources to, to, to fulfill those obligations. Um, and the key way to do this is through engagement and increasing membership um, and just training the next generation of, uh, of biodiversity scientists. You, you've touched on this right here, but I want to ask you very specifically, the last question I, I like to ask a lot of people uh, is, why do you think this biodiversity discovery is so important? Uh, you, you, you talked all the way around it, but let's, let's <laughs> specifically address that one question. Why do we need to do this? I have my reasons, and we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. What do you think the most important reason is? Besides the fact that it, it's just something we should do, but is there, is there a more specific reason? Yeah, I think, I think commonly... People try to sort of justify their taxonomic focus or their or their study organism through sort of its place in the natural environment and its niche and you know how fundamentally important it is to this certain ecosystem or or such like that. Um, but you know, quite frankly, we're in the midst of the of the sixth mass extinction. You know, it's it's not coming in twenty years. It's not coming in fifty years. It's not coming in hundred years. It's happening all around us all the time. For me, I think if you've ever looked at a spider palp, um, the, uh, the, the male genitalia um, under a microscope, you're just, you know, you're enamored with just how incredibly intricate and amazing this structure that's maybe 0.1 of a millimeter long is. And that to me is the sort of fundamental unit of biodiversity. Um, it's how they maintain reproductive isolation. It's how speciation arise, arises. Um, and yet, you know, for 4.5 billion years, uh, the planet has been has been taking along, leading us up to this moment where we currently live in probably the most biodiverse era in the history of life on Earth. And I, yeah, I absolutely believe we have a humongous responsibility um, to sort of elucidate that that beauty, if you will, um, of of evolution and and all of its constituent parts, which is uh, which is every species that makes up the diversity of life on Earth. And, and I mean, lastly, my own my own very very subjective view is just that like biodiversity and biodiversity discovery um, is just so inherently uh, beautifully and wonderfully complex, um, and we have this fantastic opportunity to voice it, illustrate it, um, and share it with the world. And I think it's um, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And I I, <laughs> I struggle to see why we encounter <laughs> so many issues with um, with garnering funding and uh, and interest in taxonomy, um, because it is really just um, you know it's wonderfully fun um, and immensely important um, for the understanding of, of 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 biodiversity. On that note, I'm going to go ahead and let you get back to your world because it's the afternoon where you are. 
late afternoon now, I think we're getting to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's four o'clock or so. And I need to go off and do some things here on my side. I've really enjoyed, this is the first time we've actually met kind of in person in quotes via Zoom. And uh, it's nice because we've communicated before, long before the podcast area. And so it's great to see you and to get to meet you kind of in a face-to-face way. So, Brogan, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, again, I'm a huge supporter of the podcast um, and everything you try to do. There's absolutely no- nothing else like it out there. So um, uh, it was brilliant to be here. Thanks a lot. Once again, Brogan Pet's paper is in the March 14th issue of Zoataxa. The title of the paper is... A new species of copa from dry forests in the northwest of Madagascar. See the episode notes for a link to his paper. And to learn more about Brogan, check out his Twitter, at BroganConBio. That's at B-R-O-G-A-N-C-O-N-B-I-O. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's Facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.